This podcast includes reference to abuse, physical and sexual violence, which some listeners may find distressing. I'm Molly Catchell and welcome to the Gives a Smile podcast, the podcast where we will be exploring issues of sexual violence, harassment and assault with a focus on university students. Birthed from the campaign All About Respect at York St John University, this podcast will cover topics which some may find challenging, so this podcast might not be for you. But for those still listening, I welcome you on a journey of discovering truths. Through open and honest conversation, I aim to educate and inform people about the importance of respect and healthy relationships while tackling those challenging questions. This week, joined by Nat Norrit, one of the All About Respect coordinators, and Johnny Dudley, a graduate teaching assistant in psychology and PhD student at York St. John University. In this week's episode, we'll be exploring rape myths and victim blaming. We'll be exploring common rape myths and examples of victim blaming while exploring where these misconceptions have come from. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the open and honest conversation. What actually are rape myths? Stereotypical misunderstanding of why sexual violence, rape, sexual assault actually occurs. So the common one that you hear a lot of things like because of what she was wearing or she'd been drinking. You know, there's sorts of misunderstandings and stereotypes that come basically from a general misunderstanding of how sexual violence occurs. Stereotype is, I think, is the key word. I think sexual-based crimes are quite poorly understood generally. And I think our understanding of general public of what causes them and where the blame lies and, and things is, is quite poor as a whole. And so I think those stereotypes that we kind of get really impact the way we view those crimes. And what are the probably the most common rape myths that you'd like come across then? I hate to use the word favourite, but <laughs> yeah, yeah favourite. <laughs> There's interesting ones. I think like Nat said, the most common ones, uh, level of intoxication. So she was drunk. Yeah. She put herself in that scenario. And you sort of see the way she dressed being particularly used quite a lot. I know there was that famous case in Ireland, uh, was it last year or the year before, where they used the underwear that the victim was wearing because she was wearing a thong. So they suggest this was sort of racy underwear. So she must have been going out looking for some kind of sexual activity. So therefore, that kind of behaviour would increase their chance of being raped. And I think those kind of things are the most common ones you kind of hear. Definitely anything to do with what you're wearing. Have you been drinking or have you been using drugs or other substances? But then the other one as well that we hear more of, but it's much more subtle, much more controversial is this notion of not being safe. So not being in a safe space, being alone in a club on your own. And this notion that you've been left isolated and in some way that is your fault because you've been left in that sort of risky situation. That's quite a common one, but a very controversial one about how that message gets across. But definitely drink and uh, what you wear in it. Okay. Yeah, I think a really interesting one as well is this idea, as I was reading the paper on it the other day, about the lack of resistance on the victim's part. And so this idea of, you know, they're not kicking and screaming and shouting no and get off me. So they must have been okay with what was going on. And I find it quite strange because fight or flight or freeze is such a common knowledge thing that we have generally within the general population. But we just don't seem to apply that knowledge to the, the instance of rape, which is quite odd. And the idea that somebody could freeze and not know what to do and be too scared to do anything is sort of doesn't seem to get applied to rape cases very mm. often. It's almost like they're expecting, oh, well, if you didn't want it, you need to speak up and say so. Yeah, shouting and screaming and kicking and, and fighting. And, and that's just not the way it works. But you're right, this issue of fright or flight but we don't seem to apply it in these situations. So it's a commonly understood sort of everyday concept, but when it comes to issues of sexual violence, this massive disconnect. You know, you were saying about how like we apply these things to everyday life, but not necessarily to like sexual assaults. And it was interesting, I read by a lady called Jessica Eaton and she campaigned for 
sexual violence like for victims and she stated how like when there's like a terrorist attack the government and the police say we will not change our way of living we will not change our behavior but when women are raped they say oh women should change their behaviors so why do you think then that there's so much responsibility placed on victims of sexual violence why is it for them to change part of it is to do with the fact that it is such a horrific experience that people don't like to think that it could happen to them so they don't like to think that this is something that could impact on anybody, which of course it can, and it can affect anyone at all at any time. People don't like to think like that with something like this because it's you know, such a horrible experience. So therefore, there must be something wrong with the person who was assaulted or who was raped. It can't possibly be a societal issue. It must be to do with them. Because opening up that discussion and saying, well, actually, how do we address the problematic issue, as in the perpetrator, becomes far too complicated. We have to recognise that actually this is a much more common occurrence than we realise. And it makes people feel uncomfortable. I think it's a difficult conversation to have. Part of it probably stems as well from the fact that rape is so, so hard to get a conviction for. It's hard enough to just to get women to report it, never mind to actually get a conviction. And so I think perhaps one of the tactics that we take, because it's so hard to actually convict, is to try and just do whatever we can to stop it happening at all. And we're trying to get as much as we can perpetrators to stop doing it. It's hard enough. To, again, like you say, you know, it doesn't apply to terrorist attacks and other stuff. Mm-hmm. We never seem to blame the murder victim for getting murdered, but we seem to sometimes imply that the rape victim was at fault. And, and obviously they never are. But I think that's one of the tactics because sort of, it's so hard to convict and, and find the perpetrator that sometimes if we can just try and avoid the crime occurring altogether, it's easier, as wrong as that sounds. It's almost like a sense of like shift of responsibility. I do of like victim blaming in the sense that obviously victim blaming occurs when a victim of a crime almost like held at fault. It's like their own doing their own actions they could have done something to avoid it but I found it really interesting how I read that it was a psychologist who argued victim blaming is like in a way our way of making sense and feeling control of the situation so when we talk about self-blame there's different ways we try and figure out how we blame different aspects so we can blame ourselves or we can blame others and when we blame ourselves we can blame ourselves in what we call two ways behavioral self-blame are and I can never say the second one so I'm going to say self-blame based on character when we do that what happens is if we blame say something that we've done that gives us a sense of control over a situation. Say I fail an exam tomorrow. Is it because I haven't done enough revision? Gives me that sense of understanding as to why it happened. If it's more to do with my character, there's less control there. And we know that control and a sense of control really buffers the impact of an experience on the mental health. So when we're talking about self-blame, it can be really challenging about the different aspects of blaming the self and then the the different aspects of blaming other people. So it gets really complicated when we try and tease it all apart. And it is about trying to get an understanding for why a situation has happened and actually recognising that it's the other person is key because it's not about yourself. It's not about blaming who you are for why that experience happened. It's about helping someone to recognise that it is completely the responsibility of the perpetrator, for one of a better phrase. It is definitely, you know, on them. And this is where you get this sort of meshing of rape myths and self-blame coming together. Because when we hear all these rape myths, then you begin to internalise them a bit. Is it because of what I was wearing? Is it because I'd had a drink? Is it because I'd been left on my own? And when you've got all these sort of societal messages out there, you can't help but take them in. And what we're trying to do is, is disentangle that and say, actually, no, not you, them. So the idea of they're saying, well, what were you wearing? Were you drinking that night? For me, like that was sort of alluding to that. I think it kind of, again, comes down to how difficult 
rape cases are in general to manage to know what really happened i know that you sort of see it quite often where it was we didn't have sex or well then the evidence comes back they have sex but we did have sex but it was consensual and how can you prove otherwise and so i think when it's so difficult to you know there's a murder there's dna this guy's dead this guy was there he did it when it's a he said she said kind of argument i think it becomes really difficult to kind of attribute all the blame to the guy when you don't know for certain that it was him and there's evidence sort of even if you might be kind of sure there's still some kind of doubt and I think that seed of doubt kind of says well maybe I shouldn't attribute all the blame the perpetrator what did she do what did what did the victim do and I think like Nat was saying there you kind of it should be our job and everybody's job really to kind of make sure that when this happens and somebody's been through this experience that's probably the worst experience that they're ever going to have that we make sure that they're not adding that extra level of blame onto themselves that they just don't need to. I think that's a key sort of point is when we're talking to people in my job, and I'm sure others have had this experience as well, when people have come to you and sort of report an experience, is be mindful of what you say and how you say it and not reinforcing some of these stereotypes that we've seen. And some of the stereotype, one that I've mentioned already, this notion of not being alone, don't walk home on your own really causes huge debate because you'll have a group of people who say, well, it's common sense. You know, all sorts of risky things can happen if you're walking home on on your own on a night out. You know, all sorts of things, you know, think of river safety in York. Don't Mm. be left alone. And there's people who are really strong advocates of that versus people who are saying, I should be able to walk wherever I want to and be safe. It's not my responsibility to make sure I have people around me just to stop other people from attacking me. You know, and it becomes this really complicated discussion. So when we then start to talk about to people who have had these experiences, not reinforcing these stereotypes is key. You know, not saying, did you have to drink? And, you know, were you walking alone last night? And what were you wearing? Because people then begin to internalize that. And that's where they begin to start thinking, well, maybe it is my fault. And if those questions about, was it me? Was it them? Are then brought into the mix. It becomes really complicated. And the impact is worsened almost because it's almost like, am I being believed? One thing that we've been trying to do with the All About Respect project is bust some of those myths, if you like, and say, let's not say those things. Let's try and raise awareness of why you don't say them. Where do you think then that these misconceptions, stereotypes, where it may come from? A lot of it is a misunderstanding. If we break them down, so if we think about like the the drinking and the dress one, what were you wearing? What had you been drinking? I think it's, you know, a misunderstanding of why it's happened, but also this not wanting to acknowledge that it can happen to anyone. So actually, there must be something wrong with that person for it to happen to them, make you feel safer because you think, oh, gosh, it can't possibly ever happen to me. There must be something that they've done. And we all know that's wrong. But is there an element of self-protection there by thinking, oh, gosh, what a horrible world it must be if this can happen to that person or that person, they must have done something wrong. And then the other one, you know, are you walking alone? Are you staying safe? I do sometimes wonder whether that's just come out of a misguided sort of sense of trying to help but getting the message wrong and not thinking through what that message could look like. That's really key because I know there was a conference I was at during the summer and there was a woman who was talking about this idea of there being a difference between, there's a horrible term, I hate it, real rape. It's this idea mm-hmm. of like stranger rape, of, you know, the stereotype man in a dark alley is going to jump out and rape you is insanely uncommon. And they, this paper she was a part of, they looked at over 2,000 different cases and there wasn't a single case of, wow. of stranger rape. 
And it was overwhelmingly either an ex-partner or a family member or a current partner that rape cases tended to, and sexual assault cases tended to be. And this idea that that was sort of leading to there, that that somebody is just going to jump out and attack you every time you're alone in a dark place is not true. I think it is like Nat was saying, very much a case of people want to help and want to give you good advice, but also that's just not true and it's just not the case when i used to always think of rape i used to always think all my days it happens in a dark alley someone's going to jump out of me when i'm walking and do you think to some sense maybe that stemmed from i don't know like bad reporting or the media do you think they've got an impact of how we send these ideas of what we think rape is you know those kind of cases are uncommon but they're the fancy ones they're the ones that grab the headlines and i think also tv and and movies kind of have a big thing to answer for because you see the cases that come out and stuff like that i know there was a tv show Hannah and I watched recently that um, Unbelievable yeah, on Netflix. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to mention earlier, actually, it does a really, really good job of demonstrating the experience a victim has immediately after. I said to Hannah, it gave me a really, really good sense of actually, you know, as a man, like if I was a woman and I experienced this, yeah, I don't think I would report it. It was horrendous. It's based on a true story, but I don't know how dramatized it is, but those are the kind of things that you see in the literature and you hear people who've experienced this and victims talk about this and how horrific that experience of reporting actually is. And so that kind of gives you an idea of why people don't report as much. And I, I do think that media and stuff have a, a lot to answer for in terms of where rape myths come from. I think they're getting a little bit better beginning to tackle some of the challenging, you know, some of the misconceptions around sexual violence. So I know I mean, I'm going to give an insight of some of my terrible TV watching, but I know uh, <laughs> a few years back there was a case on Emmerdale where a husband raped a wife and it was something that hadn't really been covered in the soaps as such. And then there's also, you know, same-sex sexual violence is being shown more in sort of dramas, in soaps. So whether they're beginning to open up the narrative a little bit more, but I do think you're hitting it right on the head in terms of some of these myths and misunderstandings do come from this stereotypical notion of a man in an alleyway with a knife attacking a woman and the complexities of sexual violence we know are much more really good rape myth that you kind of touched on there as well in terms of the idea of within a relationship and within a marriage that this idea that they're my partner you can't rape them and how do you think then that we, as a society and as a collective, change these myths and need for more education? Like, what is it that we can do? There's almost like a multi-pronged attack, isn't there? I mean, yeah. there's great body of work that's been done on trying to prevent sexual violence and raise awareness around consent. And running alongside that, you almost need this type of conversation, you know, understanding what myths are. And also knowing how to respond. So how to respond to a disclosure is key. So what to say and what you shouldn't say, you know, making sure that you believe someone and make the sort of gestures and and noises, if you like, that, you know, you're demonstrating that you believe what somebody else is saying without then going into this conversation of what happened, where were you, had you been drinking, you know, all of these sorts of stereotypical phrases, if you like, but we know are commonly used. It's about opening up that sort of conversation and training to raise awareness of what you should and shouldn't say. Yeah, I think that's right there with with this idea that you can approach some of these things before and as a prevention tactic to say, you know, don't get too drunk when you're out. Try and make sure you're still in control. Those kind of things. I think the dress one is just stop seeing and throw that out the window. You know, you can say, these are things you can do to prevent putting yourself in that situation. But I think after the fact, it's a complete no-go. And if somebody has been raped or experienced sexual assault, you have to put the perpetrator to 100% of the blame. And one thing that I think that's quite common and you hear quite a lot, I've got a, a few friends and I'm getting to that age now where my friends are having children and things. And people who are having boys, because of my research, have asked me things about false accusations and that that's something that actually people are now worried about having a boy. It's really alien to me that, that that's something that you would be concerned about. 
I was reading an article a while ago that a man is more likely to be sexually assaulted as a victim of that than he is to be falsely accused. I think there was a meta-analysis on it. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was it was like 0.05% of like potted rapes were, were false accusations. So it's so, so unlikely. But I think that leads into it as well. And this idea that, again, linking into what we're saying about the media, that that gets on the news because it's so uncommon and because it's so out there, they get reported way more frequently than they should. And so we think it's more common than it is. So I think that probably leads into the kind of doubt as well that we have of rape victims because we've heard about false accusations and even though they're so infrequent we know about them and so we kind of every case that comes up we start to think well could this be a false accusation whereas the false accusation rate is no higher than any other crime and yet this seems to be the crime that we focus so much on there was the case of the student he was at oxford i think and you know i'm I'm sure it had been challenging and i have sympathy with him for his experience but the media and the news in particular had it covered in such in-depth detail that it almost had this impact of people thinking, oh God, false accusations, it must be a really big problem. Well, actually, how about you put on every single case that doesn't get caught? Mm. How about we have every single case on the news that goes no further than an initial reporting stage? How about we put Mm. that on the news and focus on that rather than false accusations? Because as Johnny said, the rate is similar to, you know, false accusations of burglary or car theft or whatever. It's no different, but it, it does feed into this sort of misunderstanding around the narrative. And I think, you know, the other side of it is what messages do we need to hear? So this idea of staying safe, there's a huge debate of, you know, do you tell people to stay safe and look after themselves or do you tell people basically not to assault each other? Flippant again, and I'm really sorry, but it's like, <laughs> which way round are we going to do this? And at the moment, we maybe need a little bit of both but bring with them huge discussions about how best to get that message across and that's where we need the whole community to take part and actually get messages out there that resonate with people you think there ever will be a change for me one of the things that we need to sort of address first i don't know lad culture is quite a common phrase that goes about now but i do think this idea of kind of boys will be boys oh you know they're just kind of being lads and being boys and stuff like that and that's this is what guys do and i think we need to kind of dispel that myth that being sexually abusive or sexually violent in any way is laddish or manly or whatever and, and kind of address that first thing. Like Nat said, we should really address the behavior before we start to address the behavior of the victim. And I think we should just tell people not to be doing it really. Is, is, <laughs> is, is, obviously, that is much easier said than done. Well, if you look at, say, inappropriate sort of racist comments and racist language and the way that that has shifted over the years in terms of what isn't acceptable and making it clear what isn't acceptable. What sort of shift are we going to need in the language to make it clear, as Johnny says, that this type of behaviour is not just laddish behaviour, it's not to be expected. I don't think things won't change. I think it's just a matter of how quickly we can get things to change. And I think we're already beginning to see a bit of a shift around what isn't acceptable to say to someone who discloses that. And I've seen definitely in the past couple of years, just people asking more, you know, what should I say if somebody says this to me? Or, you know, how do I help somebody who says this? And the very fact that it's in people's mind is a really good first step. So it's now how do we build upon that? And having the whole community involved. So, you know, men, women, students, older adults, you know, different generations, different ethnicities involved in the discussion to raise awareness Mm -hmm. is going to be really key. And I think one of the interesting parts of it as well is understanding when people ultimately resist, which 
some yeah. world, particularly people from older generations. Yeah. I know you see a lot going on in America, you know, with this whole like Trump is sort of at the forefront of it with this whole PC gone mad. Honestly, you can't slap a woman on the ass now, you know, it's a compliment, you know, all that kind of thing. And I think it's understanding how we kind of dispel that come back as well when ultimately sort of the idea of the right wing PC gone mad crowd how do we kind of have that retort with them and, and have that discussion to say no just no that's not okay we've got to be prepared for the argument and the counter that yeah. will ultimately follow it I think it's interesting you're saying especially regarding like generational because I do think people from all generations that seem to have ideas and views in time we will be able to flatten it and be able to influence people's ideas a lot more positively yeah, and I think it's about, you know, just having a conversation. It's not about blaming anyone or saying, you know, you're wrong. It's about trying to bring people with you as you change the conversation. It doesn't have to be a particularly aggressive row, you know, you're wrong, you don't understand. But it's about how do you try and understand where their misconceptions come from and challenge that is really key. There is, you know, generational differences. There's all sorts of differences out there. It's just having a, a safe forum where people can come and have a conversation. Making that environment can be quite difficult at times, but it's just getting people involved. Making it relatable to people as well and making people yeah. understand that I think this crowd you get from this is older white men. They're kind of the people that, and ultimately they're the people making most of the decisions in higher places. So it's how do you kind of relate to them and how do you get them to understand this? How do we relate this to people who are perhaps in, in higher positions who might be older men who maybe don't have a greater understanding of this as sort of younger or women would do? In what ways then have um, we at York Centre and University for like All About Respect? In what ways are we trying to tackle this as an issue and to help educate people? That's a really interesting one. It's a continuous process because every time we run a session on this, do we come across a new challenge or try and deliver deliver a message in a different way. So we're coming at it from multiple angles, if you like. Lots of awareness raising posters. So posters and images that are designed to try and make people think. Posters around consent, around rape myths, just to start up that conversation. And it's about having a space somewhere public where people can come and talk to people who maybe know a little bit more about the subject area, but are by no means experts, just have an interest in that area and having that sort of conversation. You know, what do people understand by sexual violence? I mean, that's the first step. You know, what is sexual assault? Who's involved? This myth busting around, you know, as Johnny says, it's not a stranger in the dark and having those sorts of conversations and then trying to basically get the message out in lots of different ways. So we've had the dance group involved we've had theater groups involved literature spoken word events and things like that just to challenge some of these myths and then there's the research side of things as well you know how do things like blame shame impact on the mental health of people who have these experiences so there's lots of different bits of work going on to try and understand but also tackle myths and misunderstanding around sexual violence as a whole so hopefully that will begin to spiral out across the city bit by bit on beer mats and posters on the back of toilet doors and all sorts just to make people think a little bit differently. Yeah, I think one of the really cool things I've sort of found with All About Respect, my experience, I'm not as involved as Nat is, is this idea of kind of being collaborative. So Nat and I are both from the psychology department, but when we kind of get people from, I know I've had discussions with the guys from theatre studies and a multitude of different areas that I wouldn't necessarily ordinarily, you know, law and things like that, I wouldn't really have had those conversations with them. And, and to get kind of their viewpoint and discuss things with them and discuss research. And, and there's a few different times when we've been at events and I've come away with a different mindset of how I should approach my research and or how I should see things perhaps slightly differently because I'd not thought of that because he's coming at it from a theatre or a law or a whatever kind of viewpoint and that makes me kind of 
think about my own work differently. So I think that's really good in that collaborative sense for me as a, as a researcher, I find, because it just allows us to kind of approach it from a multitude of different perspectives, which is which is really positive. And every year we get different volunteers. So we're really lucky with the groups of students that we've got this year. And it's just trying to get different groups involved. How do we reach out to, say, the students who are not as involved at the moment? I'm not really sure. So some disciplines haven't really got as involved. And maybe we need to be a bit more proactive with them. But as Johnny said, you know, people like theatre and music have had sociology involved and all sorts. It's just great to have this different group of people view it from lots of different angles. So it's a great project. It's just keeping the momentum going. So I was having a, a conversation with an organisation not long ago who said, oh, yeah, we've done sexual violence now. We've ticked that box. We've, we've done that training. <laughs> it's, it's all sorted. And you're like, hmm, not really sure. Yeah, excellent. Completed it, Completed Yeah, it. sorted. <laughs> you know, and it's like how, yes, you may have attended a training course for an hour and that's great. But it's like keeping it going because changes constantly. So why is it then important to have something like All About Respect present? If you don't, it's a hidden issue. And and this is part of the problem. As Johnny was saying earlier, you know, it's a really difficult conversation to have. When we set up All About Respect, the, the sort of driving force behind it was trying to make it okay to have these conversations. So the first step was raising awareness. And we think we're doing quite a good job at that because people recognize the logo. They know what All About Respect is about. So if they had a concern or they wanted to know a bit more, they just need to search for All About Respect. So that was the first step. And then what you begin to see very gradually is a little bit of a culture change in terms of an institution. So actually, you get more and more staff involved. So they come and seek out advice. I've had a student who's had this experience or this happened to me, and I want to know a little bit more about how I can maybe help others. And you begin to normalize the conversation a bit. And that's really what we want to do. We want to say, you know, these things happen. We don't want to stigmatize these experiences. We want to be there for you. And we want you to be involved in changing the culture a little bit more. I think without that, everything just gets hidden just feels like there's no one that understands or nowhere that you can go for help. And we wanted to challenge that a bit. I think one of the really interesting things, Nat, you actually said it at the All About Respect event, when they teach you how to teach at yeah. university, they, they cover, you know, how to do PowerPoints and Prezi and all those some things and how to talk to people and communicate to students, but they don't ever tell you what to do if something like that happens. If a student comes to you and says, I've experienced this, what should I do? Where should I go? And I think that's one thing that we really should be changing because if you have something like that happen to you, you think, oh my God, what do I do? I don't know what to say. And you don't want to give wrong advice. You don't want to give bad advice. And like we discussed earlier with you, you don't want to sort of perpetuate these kind of rape myths and what you should and shouldn't say. And I think not only just for students, but for staff as well, kind of teaching them how to handle those situations. But I think the importance of all that respect, looking at it from a man's perspective, is that I know when you kind of talk to other men, is this is a really, really hard topic for men to talk about because I know we've experienced it at the, uh, the Bison training and stuff like that, is that men tend to get very defensive because a lot of the research isn't as good at is, is looking outside of that idea of the heteronormative kind of relationship and, and that the man is the perpetrator and the woman is the victim. And, and yes, it does occur in other ways, but that is overwhelmingly the most common way that it occurs. So I think it's really difficult because men are kind of immediately put in the position of you not you know you specifically and it could be you and so i think the idea that actually it could be me that does this it could be 
one of my mates, you immediately kind of associate one of the behaviors with an experience you've had or somebody you know, uh, and you think, oh, no, holy shit, like my friend's done that. But I was out on a night out and, and Dave did this or whatever. I don't know anybody called Dave, so you know, that's not, you know, that's the example you kind of think. I think as a man, it's, it's quite difficult to have that conversation sometimes. So I think the important thing is getting men to think and talk about this so that that kind of becomes a bit more normal. The sooner we can kind of normalize it, the sooner we can actually address stuff because the idea of it being a bit of a taboo, I know as, as British people generally, we're very prudish and we don't like talking about sex <laughs> stop, but of a sexual violence, you know, even less. Yeah. So I think the sooner we can get over that and start to get people to talk about this stuff openly and it doesn't become as taboo and, and scary to talk about, we can kind of dispel some of the myths and we can actually have serious conversations about it. I do feel all about respect helps educate people and encourage conversation, which is very much needed. That's what it's about. And I was just thinking while Johnny was talking, this could probably be a whole podcast on its own. You know, <laughs> you open up this conversation and we try and, and do it in a way where we hopefully try and make everybody feel welcome. Because if there is this stereotype about, you know, it's men are the perpetrators, women are the victims. How challenging is it then for men who experience this and men who are victimized yeah. and men who are sexually assaulted to then come forward? Mm -hmm. So it's been really key as part of the All About Respect project to try and make everybody feel as part of the conversation. Sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong, but at least you feel like we're trying and we're going in the right direction. Seeing a move with that in terms of domestic violence, yeah. you see more of a move in that generally towards, you know, men can be victim to that too. And I think that's something that hopefully will kind of follow suit with sexual violence and rape and, and things pretty quickly. And that's kind of the hope. You've been listening to the Give Us a Smile podcast with Molly Cattrall. Massive thank you to Nat and Johnny for joining me today and sharing an insight into rape myths and victim blaming. This episode showed the need to challenge rape myths in order to educate and how the media has potentially impacted towards these misconceptions. In next week's episode, we'll be looking at porn and whether it impacts towards our understanding of what a healthy relationship is. But that's all for today's episode. You can find all our other episodes on the All About Respect SoundCloud. Thanks again for listening. For anyone that's been affected by anything mentioned within this podcast, please access support from the All About Respect website at reportandsupport.yorksj.ac.uk.